Beautiful song. Thank you. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Jude. Jude, the last, second to last book in the Bible, right before Revelation. If you find Revelation, just go back a page, and you find the book of Jude. Last week, we began a, a uh, series uh, in Jude as we just worked through the book and try to understand all that is there. If you've never read through, if you've never looked at the book of Jude, it may seem like, oh, this is a pretty simple letter, pretty short, and in fact, it is not. And uh, Wednesday night, as we were looking at these verses uh, to preview for to this morning, uh, it was brought up, are, are you sure you're going to be able to get through all that? And I said, nope, I'm not. But that's the plan. And I'm just going to say right off the bat that I know that I am not going to say absolutely everything that could be said about these verses, and I'm also not going to say everything that I want to say about these verses, uh, but just to get through it, uh, I want to, I've, I've had to leave out some things. Uh, tonight, we'll, we'll go back and look at some, um, some other things that were left out, and if there's, other, if there's ever anything as we walk through these, these verses that uh, you, you said, I've heard something about this, or I have a question about this, uh, then, then definitely come back tonight and let's talk about it. Uh, and, and, and learn a little bit more. Uh, the book of Jude offers a, a, a level of learning for just about every person. If you want to get a 30,000-foot view, uh, that's what we're trying to do. But if you want to get a magnifying glass and dig around in the dirt, you definitely will continue to find things. And uh, that this is actually the letters like these are more more difficult to put together than uh, and something uh, maybe a little bit longer because uh, the same amount of stuff is said, but just compact in, in this uh, just one little page here. So don't be fooled by the, the size of the, of the letter. Uh, there is a lot to be said. And this morning, we're going to continue the theme that was begun in verse number 3 about contending for the faith. And this morning, we'll be answering the question, why we must contend for the faith. Let's pray. We'll begin. Father, we do come to ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your spirit to teach us what it is that we need to know. We will see, we have seen that man's words are not sufficient. They are not filling. They are not satisfying. They are often deceiving. But your words are true and faithful, sufficient, perfect. They are what we desire. So give us spiritual meat, the milk, and the honey of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed on um, maybe uh, some kind of a product, maybe a piece of music or artwork, or uh, maybe even a book, a website, you might see some language uh, usually around the copyright area. It says something to the, measure, to the effect that uh, this product may not be altered in any way. Uh, maybe you've heard it or used it to say, uh, you know, you can use this for free, but uh, do not change it in any way. You ever wondered why they say that? Why, what is the big deal? What is the, the reason? Why are they so worried about people changing their product? Well, the simple answer is because once you've changed their product, Change the words in the song or add a little extra artwork to the, uh, or take away from the original. It's no longer their product. 
That's not what their thing is anymore. And other people will see it and recognize the similarity possibly, but associate an imitation with the real thing. Uh, when I was a high school senior, my class, my giant uh, high school class of eight, went on a, uh, a, a senior trip to New York City. We graduated in 2001, so actually I have a picture uh, of me on, uh, I can't remember which building we were in, but the, the Twin Towers were in the background in May of 2001. Little did we know that uh, just in a few months that would that was no longer be there. But while we were there, one of the things that we heard about and we wanted to find out was uh, those guys that sell you things out of the briefcase, under the bridge, behind the alley, and it's dangerous and, and kind of cool. And uh, we found a guy that uh, had Rolexes. Uh, in his, I can't remember if it was in his trench coat or in his briefcase, but it was like everything that, you know, stereotypical that you imagine. And so I bought a Rolex for like 20 bucks, and I thought that was so cool. It had two X's in it. Uh, but, and I knew that it wasn't real, okay, I wasn't fooled by that, but we wanted the experience of buying imitation Rolexes and other things. Well, uh, we got back to school, I believe that we got back on a Friday, and uh, um, we got back to Washington on a Friday, and on Monday I was in school, and I was wearing my Rolex, you know, and it had the gold band, and it was, it was glittery and shiny, and I was talking, and I did this, and it just fell off my arm. Now, I was disappointed, but I wasn't surprised. It's actually illegal, right, to change something and to sell something, pass off an imitation as the genuine article. Well, this is what Jude is concerned with in his letter, and particularly in the verses that we, have, we will see this morning. Jude's purpose in the verses we have before us, verses 4-10, through 10, is to explain why the people must contend for the faith. The very simple answer is because there is imitation out there. It is, it is being passed off as the real thing. Jude wanted these people to understand that the faith cannot be altered in any way. Otherwise, it's no longer the faith. It's no longer the genuine article. There were dangerous people among them. Among these, these Christians. I, I think of it for just to help me understand it as a particular church. We don't know if it was one church only or a group of churches in a region. We don't know that. But if we imagine at least a local church reading this letter and recognizing that there are some real dangerous people and they are distorting the Gospel and leading people astray. And this morning as we look through these verses, verses 4-10, through we'll read them in just a moment, Jude is going to reveal three things about them. Now, I'm glad that he does not give names because I think that would actually distract us from what really needs to be seen. He does not describe these people by name or face, but by motives, actions, and future. And it's helpful because these types of people still exist today. The names and the faces have changed since the first century but they're still here today. In other words, we're going to be looking this morning at what they're trying to do, what they are doing, and what has happened to others who have tried the same thing. So if you'll look with me in verse number 4, and actually, let's begin in verse number 3 because he explains in verse number 4 what he meant in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, did not, uh, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This morning we're going to see, as I said, the three descriptions of these certain people. That's what I call them because that's what he calls them at the very beginning. And then he'll just keep calling them these people or they. Uh, so what certain people are like. First of all, uh, we need to recognize in verse number 3, once again, Jude's call to contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith. Who is Jude writing to? Is he writing to pastors and teachers? Is he writing to elders and deacons? He has told us that he is writing to saints. He has told us that he is writing just merely to Christians. This call to contend for the faith is for everybody. Not just for the leaders. Not just for the big shots. For everybody. It is imperative that these everyday Christians, the housewives, the students, the farmers, the teachers, the retirees, even the children, it is imperative that every Christian learns and knows how to contend for the faith. R.C. Sproul, he's now with the Lord, famous for a statement. He wrote a book with this uh, as the title, he made a statement, everybody's a theologian. Some of us are good and some of us are bad. But everybody's a theologian, he says, because we all have some view of who God is. And in the same vein, we need to think of ourselves as Christian theologians. Because we all have a view of God. It's not always the correct view of God. But we all have a view of God. And here we have a problem within the churches because of bad views of God. Or we could say, bad theology. Now we live in, an, in a day where Bible teaching and preaching is more abundant and available than it ever has been. But that's a two-edged sword. Because on the one hand, 
while we can hear preaching and teaching through podcasts and radios and, and TV and, and books, we can go to conferences. You could have a full-time job just traveling from Bible conference to Bible conference. And then we can hear so much teaching. The downside of that is, with there an abundance of teaching is not just a possibility, but the strong present reality, there's a lot of bad teaching out there. Now, if we could somehow limit the only Bible teaching to what is taught in the local churches, of course, would be a, 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 a poor thing because then you'd only, you'd only be able to learn when you came to church, but it would limit how much bad teaching was going on. So while we are thankful that we have all of this abundant teaching and preaching and in books and, and, and podcasts and Bible studies and all these different things, we need to be aware that it's not all right. It's not all good. We must then be good theologians. We must recognize that there are dangers not only out there somewhere, but potentially within the walls of this church within the church at large, under the banner of Christianity. There are people out there who write books and preach sermons in the name of Christ and say everything wrong about Christ. And what's dangerous is sometimes it sounds really good. And often, many people believe it. So let's look at what these certain people want to do. First of all, we see their motives. Verse number 4, Jude says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for sake of time, we're just going to move very quickly through this. So jot down things as you think of them and, and uh, we can come back to them later. But let's, what, are, what are these people trying to accomplish? Now, I will, uh, we could call this false teaching. We can call it error. But as we're going to see very clearly, this is heresy. Okay, this is, this is not just they're sadly mistaken, but they're just way off, and this is dangerous stuff. So how does Jude describe their heresy? First of all, he says that it is subtle. It's not obvious. These guys have crept in unnoticed. Peter describes them in his epistle, in the second Peter 2.1, as those who secretly bring in destructive or damnable heresies. These guys have snuck into the church, and it's not if they come, it's they have come. They're here. As I mentioned last week, those churches in which Jude's letter is being written had people sitting among them that were these types of people. Now think about that for a moment. These guys are not the oddballs. Because if they were the weird ones with some crazy theology, nobody would be listening to them in the first place. These are the guys that sound good. These are the people that are influential. These are the heroes of many others. And Jude is going to discredit them and point them out and do everything but call their names. And so the people in these churches will know they're not the people that we need to be listening to. Dick Lucas, who wrote a commentary on, on, uh, on this letter of Jude, is 
just a fantastic, he's got great little one-liners in there that I just keep highlighting everywhere I go. I just, uh, it, this weekend I began reading it. And he says, he, just, he, he says it like this, those who have wormed their way in with a different kind of Christianity do not represent a refreshing change or a lost tradition. Rather, they come as a serious danger. Sometimes we hear these new things and we go, wow. Yeah, this is lost truth. Man, no one's ever heard this before. There's a reason for that. This has never been taught before. Someone's coming up with a brand new doctrine that nobody's ever come up with that ought to be a warning sign to us that if Jesus didn't come up with it, then it didn't come from Jesus. If the Bible never spoke to it and the apostles never brought it up, maybe we shouldn't either. First of all, their heresy is subtle. Secondly, their heresy is present. Once again, not a future possibility, but a clear and present danger. Thirdly, their heresy is foretold. He says there that uh, these are the people who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So it's kind of a reminder that though these people have slipped in unnoticed by you, they were noticed by God. And God foretold this long ago of their, both their coming and their condemnation. Unlike the Christians who are called and loved and kept, these people are condemned already. Fourthly, their heresy is intentional. It's important to recognize that. It will be very clear as we work through the letter. These are not people who are genuine and sincere, just mistaken. We've all been there. We've all said something or thought something, or even maybe said something, taught something that was wrong. And when we find out it's wrong, we change. We shift our thinking. These people know what they're doing. They're not trying to teach the truth. They just want to sound good. They want to look good. They want to do what they want to do, though. Notice how Jude describes them here. Now, they sound like actions, and they are actions, but it's still under their motives. Two things specifically that's happening within this time frame that I think we'll see very clearly in our day and time too. First of all, he says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And secondly, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. First of all, they twist God's grace. They pervert it. They turn it into something that it's not supposed to be. Jude here in the ESV says that they twist it into sensuality. This is sexual immorality. This is licentiousness or lasciviousness as other translations use. This is literally self-abandonment. Throwing off all uh, restriction, all rules, whatever feels good, that's what you do. And, in a, and, and specifically, in the sexual realm. These people are using grace as a license for immorality. They abuse it as an excuse to be immoral. Now understand the, the view of Christianity, this new thing called Christianity in the first century. Most everybody in the world, not lots of people in the world, have an idea of what Christianity is. But in the first century, it was still a really new idea. To Jews, 
who heard about Christianity, it sounded like uh, uh, someone was twisting the law of God into uh, lawlessness. They held to the law, and they saw Christians as twisting and using grace as a way to not have to keep the law. But on the other hand, Gentiles, I quote Lucas again, he's, he's very, very concise and clear, he says, to the skeptical Greek, the gospel would seem to offer total freedom today on the basis of total forgiveness tomorrow. You can do whatever you want, and God will forgive you. And Jude is combating both of these at the same time. I find that Jude is the kind of the other side of the coin to the book of Galatians. In Galatians, Paul addresses those people who cling to the law and say we need the law to be right with God. And Paul clearly deals with that. But Jude is dealing with the other side, the people that say, yeah, we don't need law, we don't need, we don't need any kind of rules, no authority, no restraint, just a lot of grace. Jude says, well, there's, there's problems with that idea too. So first of all, these people deny the Lord, uh, uh, sorry, they twist the gospel of grace into uh, an excuse, a license to sin. Secondly, they deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It says that they deny the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned last week that Jude contrasts himself with these people because he introduces himself as the servant of Jesus Christ whereas these people deny that Jesus is their authority. Because if Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Master, then He's the one calling the shots. But if you don't want Jesus calling the shots in your life, then you deny Him, His authority, so that you might be in charge of your life. Because these people ultimately want no rules. They want no restraint. Nobody telling me what I can and can't do. In both in their twisting of grace and in their denial of the authority of Christ. In short, these people are using the gospel to do as they please. And their motives are to basically to keep living however they want to. They're not interested in submitting to the authority of Scripture. They're not interested in submitting to the authority of Christ. They want to just do what they want, and they do it under the guise of grace. May I remind you that in Titus 2, the Bible says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace that God gives in the Gospel teaches us and trains us to say no to sin and to live disciplined, self-controlled, and godly lives. The Gospel and the faith does not give us license to sin and license to do as we want. Now, hear me. Christians are going to sin. We are not preaching a Gospel that, that makes people perfect. We are not perfect people. But Christians aren't going to use grace as an excuse to continue in their sin. That's what Paul addresses in Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? That's their motives. Secondly, notice their future. In verse number 5, 6, and 7, Jude will give three examples of people who have done this in the past. 
who have lived like these people are in his day, and they suffered the same consequences. Now, these are where we can really get bogged down in the weeds, and so without trying to notice everything on the trail, we're going to make our way right through it and make notes as you go if you want to come back and look at some of these later. Verse number 5 gives us the first example, and this is unbelieving Israel. Now, Judas uses all three of these examples who are very familiar to the Jews. More than likely, Jude is writing to people who were Jewish. People who knew the law, they knew the stories, because he's going to refer to, to accounts that are mentioned in the Scriptures as well as in their ancient Jewish literature. We can call it apocryphal literature. This is, this is stuff that was written between the Old and the New Testament. This was... The Jews regarded this as very important, but they never held it to the account uh, to the same uh, level as Scripture. But they were all very familiar with it, and Jude is using this as a resource to illustrate the truth of God's judgment on sin. So the first one is uh, the unbelieving Israelites, and he says there that not all the people who were delivered out of Egypt ended up making it into the Promised Land. Because not all who were saved were believing. Not saved from sal in salvation sense, but saved out of Egypt. And those people who were delivered from Egypt were eventually destroyed in the wilderness because of their own unbelief. Then the second example is of angels, of rebellious angels in verse number 6. And, he's, and he describes these angels as those who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Now, there's two popular ideas on which one this could be. The first, and uh, maybe not the most, most likely in my opinion, is that uh, Jude is describing the rebellious angels who revolted in heaven with Satan, and uh, they left their position of authority. Uh, more likely, my opinion at least, again, this is not a hill, I don't have a flag in my hand, but I'm going to tell you what the hill is, that there is, uh, that there is a reference here to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. You go back and read that another time. Very interesting and yet mysterious passage about the sons of God and the daughters of men, and they intermarry and they have children, and it is believed that the sons of God is talking about angels, and the daughters of men are talking about humans. You go, how can that be? Exactly. That's, that, if it's not what it actually meant, it's what the Jews thought it meant, and that's why I think Jude is referencing it. He says here that they left their position of authority and they, uh, because of their rebellion, it says there in verse number 6, that God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now just as a side note, I found it was brought out to my attention this morning, depending on the translation you're using, you're going to see the word kept twice. In the ESV, we don't see it, we only see it once, but it, it says that who did not stay within their own position is sometimes translated keep. They wouldn't keep their position of authority, so God has kept them in uh, gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, once again, we just see here that nothing is outside of God's purview to judge. If God is going to judge the angels, how much more is He going to judge the human creation? Third, uh, third uh, example that is given here is of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis chapter uh, 19. We're very familiar with, with Lot and Abraham and, and, the, and the sins of Sodom and the angels and that whole story and what a mess it is. Uh, and this is what uh, gets brought out in verse number 7. That they likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire 
And they serve it as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We will not spend time explaining that story. I think you're pretty familiar with it. But if you're not, I would encourage you to go and read Genesis chapter 19. And there we find once again that God will judge immoral behavior, including sexual sin. All three of these examples, and I know that we've rushed through what could probably be three weeks of, of, of Bible study, but all three of these examples remind us of one big truth. God cares how we live. God cares what you do. Your behavior matters. How you live matters to God. Which means then that what uh, doctrine you believe matters. Because how we live is based on what we believe. And what we believe is based on what we are taught. And so it goes all the way back to what is being taught really does matter. We live in a day where the, the, the truth is not really important. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter what truth is as long as it's whatever you want it to be. But truth matters. Because truth affects your behavior. And your behavior matters to God. And in all three cases, Israel, angels, and Sodom, we see time and again, God judges sin. God cares about what you and I do. But these certain people say, grace allows us to do whatever we want. Jude says, no, no. That's not how it works. Scripture is clear. God judges sin. Hebrews 13.4, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Thirdly, their actions. What certain people do. Verses 8-10. through 10. Yet in like manner, so he's connecting them to the example, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, remember we talked about triads last week? Groups of three. Here's another one we've already seen with the three examples. Now we see it here. Uh, there's four kind of things, actions being done here, but the first one, relying on their dreams, is the manner or the means by which they do the other three. So it controls the other three. How do they do these things? They do it by relying on their dreams. Or as one translation says, they claim authority from their dreams. In the Old Testament, uh, a dreamer was one who had uh, supposedly gotten a message from God. Sometimes it was right, sometimes it was wrong. Remember, Joseph was called a dreamer because he had dreams. And those dreams came to pass because God gave him those dreams. Daniel interpreted dreams. But there were a lot in the passage we read in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 23 this morning. There were dreamers who presented their dreams as what God had said, and God said, I didn't say that. They're making this stuff up. These people rely on their dreams. They live based on the interpretation of their own dreams instead of the faith that was once delivered for all. You say, well, God has spoken to me in a dream, and this must be how it is. This is, this is how I interpret it. I, I had a pink elephant. He was eating an ice cream cone and mowing the lawn, and so that must mean, okay, I had a weird dream last night. And you know what? I'm thankful that I don't have to figure out what that meant because I can't even remember half the time that, what I dreamt. And when I do, I think, how, what, who? No, I couldn't even explain it to anybody because I, can, I can't understand it. How, how can you live by your dreams? But that's what they do. They follow their dreams. 
problem with dreams is that they are unprovable. I can't tell you that you didn't have that dream because I wasn't there. And they are unexaminable or unquestionable. You, you can't base it on anything because they're not clear. And since you're the only one who had that dream, then you're the authority. On the other side, if the Word of God, if the faith once delivered is the authority, then we can all look at it and we can all say, well, that's not what it says. Or, yes, that's what it says. Now, based on that motive or that, that action, or the manner of which they do it, they do these three things. And notice how they're connected to the previous examples. They, because they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, just like the people in Sodom of verse number 7. Involved in all manner of sensuality and immoral, immorality and sexual self-abandonment. Uh, secondly, they reject authority, just like the angels rejected the authority that had been given to them. Thirdly, it says that they blaspheme the glorious beings. It's a little bit of a confusing phrase, but simply to blaspheme something means to ridicule or mock, to make light of something, to be disrespectful or irreverent. And they mock these glorious beings. Now, a lot of uh, disagreement on what exactly he means, but if we continue, we at least get an idea of a little bit of what he's getting after because he gives us an example that does not come from Scripture, so don't go looking for your, your, your Bible story about when Michael and, and, and the devil were arguing and fighting with each other over Moses' body. This comes from another piece of apocryphal literature that described, is called the Assumption of Moses, and Moses' body was being fought over, and, and the story goes that the devil wanted it because he was a murderer, and he deserved to be uh, in, in, with the devil, but Michael was coming to get the body to be with the Lord because he was a saint, and it goes on. Well, Jude uses this example just to simply say that even in that story, Jude, the archangel, the highest of the angels, did not mock, did not ridicule, did not blaspheme, even the devil. You think, well, the devil, he's, he's a devil, he deserves it. But, David, but he, Judah's saying, he didn't even do that to Satan. Yet, on the other hand, these people, verse number 10, uh, verse number 10 says that these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. Very different than what Michael did. They, they, they blaspheme the things that they don't get. They say, well, if I don't understand it, it must not be important. Or they think they understand it and say, yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't, I, don't, I don't care about that. And they disregard the things that they think don't matter. And ultimately, what they're doing is being led by their urges and their dreams. They're following their dreams and following their instincts like animals. We're nearing that, that season when Deer are going to be piled up on the side of the road. Why is that? Because they're following their instincts and they've lost all manner of common sense. And that's what Jude says. That's what, that's what these people do. They follow the instinct, sexually speaking, and it is by that that they are destroyed. Because they follow their dreams and their urges, they are destroyed. Now many people today want to live and tell others how to live as if you are not really under any obligation to do anything that you don't want to do. Do what feels good to you. Do what seems right to you. God will be fine with whatever you choose. Sadly, that is not the case. Sadly, there are many leaders who propagate these types of error and heresy. 
They scoff and make light at things that they don't understand, and they disregard that which seems unimportant to them. They say things like, well, you can be a Christian and do anything you want. After all, we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. Go ahead and live it up, because God wants you to have a good time. If that were the case, most of the Bible would not be necessary. Actually, all of the Bible would not be necessary. Grace does do wonderful things for us, but it does not mean that we are no longer under the law, under uh, obligation, if you will, to obey. We are, we are true, no longer under the law, but it does not mean we've been freed to do what we want. We are free to serve Christ. The truth is, sin always brings death. For the Christian, sin meant the death of our Savior on our behalf. For Christians, Romans 6 teaches us that grace means death to sin and life and service to God. For the unbeliever, sin means that you deserve and will receive the wrath and judgment of God yourself. This is the faith that is delivered. The faith delivered once for all, we could just call it the Gospel, begins with bad news. The word gospel literally means good news, but it begins with bad news. You know what the bad news is? The bad news is that you have sinned against the holy God and stand deserving of His judgment and wrath. There's nothing you can do about it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the perfect substitute. And He has died in the sinner's stead so that those, uh, those, would, uh, those, those undeserving people may be redeemed. They may be bought they may be saved and reconciled with God, but we are not saved to go back into our sin. Those who are loved and called to be justified have been kept to be sanctified. Two reasons very quickly why we must contend for the faith, and I, and I know that we're going a little bit along. Number one, we must contend for the faith because it is still being attacked today. Sin is mixed with truth all the time. And when you alter the product in any way, it is no longer the genuine thing. We must contend for the faith because when faith is mixed with sin, it is no longer the same faith delivered once for all to the saints. We must hand down the same faith that was handed down to us. And if we accept a cheap imitation of the Gospel, and that's what we'll pass down to the next generation. That's what our children will believe. That's what our neighbors will believe. Because, let's be honest, grace that lets you do whatever you want sounds a lot more fun. And it's a whole lot easier. But it leads to damnation and judgment. Deluded faith. Is that what we're sending down to our children? If we made it a little easier, if we made it a little bit more user-friendly, but in doing so, changed every bit of it. Secondly, we must contend for the faith because our faith is more reliable than our dreams. We can trust the faith. We can trust the Word of God. You cannot trust your dreams. Have you ever been wrong before? Don't trust. Don't follow your heart. I know Disney wants you to do it. Don't. 
We can determine truth and examine ourselves based on the faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. How do you do that? Not by following your dream. Not by following something that only you have or you heard. By following some notion of an idea that only you and no one else in the history of mankind has ever thought of. We look to the Word of God. Faith offers, the faith offers us objective, time-tested truth as a standard by which we measure ourselves. Dreams are anybody's guess. And it puts you in the driver's seat as to what is right and wrong. But when we look to the faith, when we look to the Word, it decides what is right and wrong for us. As a local church, we must faithfully hand down the same faith that was handed down to us, provided you were handed down the right thing. So I would ask you, first of all, is the faith that you have the genuine thing? We look to the Scriptures. Is that what you believe? That's what we talked about last week. But now, a second question to follow it, is that the faith that you're handing down to the next generation? Have we allowed faith to become diluted by sin? By lightening the rules a little bit? By fast and loose with the Gospel? As a local church, we are all obligated and responsible to keep this right. Not just the pastors and the deacons. Not just the serious Christians. Boys and girls, it's not even just for the adults. If you're a Christian, this is your responsibility. Make sure the faith you believe is the faith that you hand down. Let us be careful to keep and preserve the faith. Let us guard it. Know it. Beware of the cheap imitations that are out there and hand down the real thing so that future generations, your great-grandchildren, will have a genuine faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Father, we do need Your blessing this morning, this afternoon, this week as we go about our day because we can see all around us that there is teaching and, and behavior and, and thinking that is so contrary to what You have taught us in the Word. Sometimes it's really convincing. It really sounds good. But it's so wrong. And we are so easily deceived at times. Lord, May we protect our children and our families and each other, our brothers and sisters, from the false claims of faith and grace and gospel that are so prevalent in the world around us. May, we, may this, this church be a place where truth is clearly and soundly proclaimed that we might grow up and grow deep in faith and be able to contend against all of the cheap imitations that exist. Or there may be people in the room that the faith that was delivered to them was not the faith that you delivered to us. And I pray that you have mercifully and graciously Show them the error of their ways. 
they might believe that which is true and genuine and real and powerful and saving. They might not go believing a lie. And then I pray that those who have the real faith, they have a genuine faith, not because of their intellectual capacity, not because they're better and more privileged, they're just we're taught the right things. May we continue in the right things so that we may hand down the right things and our children may know what is real and true. Lord, give us grace to renounce ungodliness, to say no to sin, and to grow up and grow deep in in faith, in godliness, in righteousness, in obedience to the Word. Lord, we need Your Spirit to apply these words to our heart as only You can do. And for the glory of Yourself and the sake of our Savior, we pray these things. Amen. The